is bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we curse through sludge. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about the poem Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. It's that time of year again when we remember those who died in the First World War, a month of poppies and poems. The poetry of the First World War was some of the first I was taught, which I'm sure is true for a lot of English students, past and present. Now, there's many reasons for that, the first hook for students being that these poets were often only a few years older than they are, and the poems themselves tend to be direct, conversational, and serve as documentary evidence of life and the trenches, as well as literature. In fact, Ted Hughes described Dulce et Decorum Est as one, a poem that does the work we might try to do today with an outraged TV camera. But the drawback to the way in which war poetry is taught and categorised is that it can give the misleading impression that these poets came from the war, in a sense, that the war is their only context, that they were born from its sludge. Now, for someone like Wilfred Owen, killed in battle at the age of 25, of course the war coincides with his most mature and successful work, but he was a poet before he was a soldier. Perhaps instead of presenting him as a poet who found his voice in the trenches, we should pay him the credit of seeing the war as interrupting his development instead of completing it. This is something I want to consider today, as I think in Dulce et Decorum Est, Owen dramatises that interruption to great and tragical effect. Wilfred Owen is someone I've talked about already on the podcast. He has the rare distinction of appearing as a character in the episode on Pat Barker's Regeneration. And back in 2019, I made an episode on one of my favourite Owen poems, Spring Offensive. As usual, with episodes dedicated to a poem, I'll begin with some brief background information before reading the poem in full, and afterwards going through it line by line and offering up some critical interpretations. If you'd like to read along, I'll post the poem along with some images of Owen's manuscript drafts on my Instagram, at earreadthis. Alternatively, this is an opportune moment to mention that the podcast has entered the second dimension and can be watched as well as listened to, potentially undermining the branding of Ear Read This, but that's for me to worry about. Uh, Anyway, I'll have the poem up on screen as I go through it on YouTube, if that helps. So, Dulce et Decorum Est takes its name from the Latin poet Horace's Ode to Valor. Dulce et Decorum Est pro patria mori. It is sweet and meat to die for one's country. The line was frequently used to stir up support of the war and was inscribed on the chapel wall at the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. Owen will have heard the quotation in the introductory talk to new recruits given by Lieutenant Colonel William Shirley at the 2nd Battalion. This is where Owen's regiment, the Artists' Rifles, received their training. In 1916, Owen was commissioned as a 2nd Lieutenant and came to describe the men he was put in charge of as his little family. Still only 23 upon receiving his commission, Owen became glad of his prematurely grey hairs as they helped make him look a bit older. According to his biographer, Dominic Hibbard, in the dugout, Owen had to act as father, ordering, encouraging, consoling, and carrying responsibility and guilt. 
This can be strongly felt in, in poems like The Sentry and Dulce et Decorum Est, both of which feature maimed or dying men instinctively reaching out towards their commander. In the creative breakthrough Owen made whilst recuperating at Craig Lockhart Hospital, he wrote several of his best-known poems, including Anthem for Doomed Youth and Dulce et Decorum Est, which he sent to his mother Susan, calling it simply his gas poem. It tells the story of exhausted troops returning from the front to a place of distant rest, when they find themselves in the midst of a gas attack. One unfortunate man fails to fit his mask in time and dies horribly in front of the narrator. Melissa Edmondson has suggested that the source of Dulce et Decorum Est is not an actual gas attack, but in fact an earlier experience dating from when Owen was still a civilian. In the opening years of the war, he was working as an English tutor in Bordeaux, and there he visited a field hospital where English, French and German soldiers were sent, noting that their feet were sometimes covered with a brown scaly crust, which was dried blood. While this may be the origin of the blood-shod soldiers in the poem, Brian Rivers has argued that a letter written by Owen from the front two years later may have a stronger claim as a possible source. In it, Owen writes to his mother, We marched about ten miles up to the front, and there the men had to dig trenches in ground like granite. The same men, or rather the survivors of them, who two days before had been holding the advanced posts. The shells were wonderfully few, and we all reached home at about two in the morning. They can all march back from the line somehow. I say march, but of course there is no left, right, left. And we got on miserably slowly, because some of the men could not wear boots, but wound their putties around their frost-bitten feet. A few months later, in April of 1917, Owen's platoon was relieved from their position on the San Quentin front, and biographer Dominic Hibbard suggests, perhaps it was now, as they trudged towards their distant rest, all of us half-dead with fatigue, that Wilfred's men were overtaken by gas. Either way, shortly after this retreat, Owen was blown into the air by a shell explosion and spent the next few nights sheltering in a crater surrounded by the dismembered remains of a fellow officer. This traumatic event, coming after a long line of near misses from shell blasts and sniper fire, led to Owen being sent home to be treated for neurasthenia, which was how shell shock was commonly diagnosed. Before the war, as Hibbert writes, neurasthenia was a failure of function, a disassociation between organism and environment. People who had lost touch with nature and the shape and significance of their cities. I find this really interesting as it could almost describe Owen's poetic technique, the way in which he describes environments as if alienated from them. You'll see what I mean once we get into the poem. Owen's worst symptom was violent dreams, something he had suffered from before the war, on the first occasion during a fever-like illness that struck him down in 1913. Owen referred to these episodes as horrors, periods of acute depression, weakness, tachycardia, and phantasms. During the war, these phantasms returned with newly acquired visions and imagery, the faces of his dead and dying fellow men, including, if Dulce et Decorum Est is to be read literally, men who had been gassed. As he was treated in Craig Lockhart, he was taken out around here in Edinburgh's Newtown. He visited the Royal Mile and the Camera Obscura and composed a short poem, Six O'Clock on Princess Street, in which he observes a paperboy pale, rain-floored phantom of the place, with news of all the nations in your hand and all their sorrows in your face. As dramatised in Pat Barker's Regeneration, Owen's 
Annus Mirabilis was inspired by his meeting his poetic hero at Craig Lockhart. This, of course, was Siegfried Sassoon. Owen had written to his mother, I have just been reading Siegfried Sassoon and am feeling at a very high pitch of emotion. Nothing like his trench life sketches has ever been written or ever will be written. Shakespeare reads vapid after these. Owen felt that he and Sassoon had followed parallel trenches all our lives, and though Sassoon thought that the younger poet's work was very unequal, he took him under his wing and even offered notes and suggestions on some works in progress, including, as we will see, Dulce et Decorum Est. But before we look at the poem in detail, let's hear it in full. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's, sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. So beginning with the title, I'm pronouncing it in the Italianate fashion that was used in Roman Catholic churches in Owen's day, dulce et decorum est. But you may hear it pronounced elsewhere as dulce or dulce et decorum est, depending on what kind of Latin is being used. Similarly, you might find the gloss of the title as it is found in Horace to change. It is sweet and fitting, it is sweet and right, or sweet and meat to die for one's country. As Dominic Hibbard writes, years before, Owen had been playing with the phrase in a more earnest fashion. Drafts of a poem called Ballad of Peace and War, a project he tinkered with for three years, reflect an earlier mood. It is sweet and meat, the poem says, to be at peace with other people, but it is sweeter still and far more meat to die in war with brothers. In its first drafts, Dulce et Decorum Est was dedicated to Jesse Pope, etc., which Owen later changed to A Certain Poetess. Jesse Pope was a pro-war journalist who also wrote poems aimed at stirring up national feeling and winning over new recruits. I'm sure you've heard the kind of thing. Swing along together, lads, we'll have a little song. Kits won't be so heavy and the way won't be so long. We're going to cook the sausages to cook them hot and strong while we go marching to Germany. 
Dulce at Decorum Est has the structure of two interlinked sonnets, an alternating rhyme scheme that is interrupted at the end of the first 14 lines, which triggers the volta, or turn from action to argument. That's where we hear Owen stop recounting what has happened in the gas attack and directly address the reader. If in some smothering dreams you two could pace. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Let's look at the first four lines which give us this rather theatrical start. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks. Knock kneed, coughing like hags, we curse through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. In an earlier draft, Owen had as his opening hunched like old rag and bone men, which isn't half as strong either in sonic or metaphorical power. Bent double gives us that nice, solid, plosive start, and both uh, double and under sax gives the impression of acting, of role-playing, playing false. This is something we will uh, return to throughout the poem. George V. Griffith says that the sounds of Owen's poem are sounds of horror, We have coughing like hags, cursing, and later the hoots of gas shells. Add to these sounds those haunting flares, and we have this very stagey sense of horror. In fact, it reminds me of the witches in Macbeth, appearing wreathed in artificial smoke and cackling. Already the soldiers sound inured by their experiences on the front. There isn't any suggestion of panic or adrenaline here. They're just going through the motions, bored of danger, reduced to trudging beggars. Desmond Graham writes that when they turn their backs, marching away from the line, they are repudiating its flares and what they mean, defeating the flares' claim to power with a gesture which, the poem will prove, is no more substantial a protection than simply looking away. They have turned away from the light and they will be punished for it. Even though we understand the literal context of what is happening, Owen is already creating a sense that these men are not just suffering but transgressing somehow. It is a very unsoldier-like portrait from the off, a signal that this will run counter to the likes of Jesse Pope, an anti-souvenir, to use one of Owen's phrases. For as Ted Hughes said, Owen wanted to oppose the propagandists in England with a propaganda of a more powerful kind. Notice that Owen makes no reference to a specific order of retreat. The turning of backs happens as if automatic, and once they have turned, the men, he says, march to sleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshot. All went lame, all blind. This zombified behaviour adds to the impression of futility, of men performing painful, distressing actions with little care. By including no hierarchy among the men, Owen makes them all sound as if they are from the same rank and file, obeying orders as if telepathically. Again, they sound like actors, actors who uh, know their cues. Instead of men marched asleep, Owen originally had dead slow we moved. The updated line gives us that alliterative quality and such economy that it could be a dispatch. Men marched asleep. Stop. Owen made the poem blunter in successive drafts. All went lame half blind, becoming all lame and all blind. He had marvelled at how troops managed to walk while blighted with trench foot and documented how men would apply whale oil to their feet in order to try and hold it at bay. And here we have the memorable uh, image of them being bloodshot, feet covered in blood, indicating that they have been wounded. But as Peter Howarth points out, the blood may not be all their own. The phrase cannot but recall tyrants treading blood or the gorier moments of vengeance in the Old Testament, where the feet are those of the righteous, but the blood 
is always the enemy's. Personally, I think this is exactly how Owen meant it to be read, and I think he wants to remind his readers of that vague word sludge and imagine it to be made of an abominable mixture of mud and blood. In his poem Futility from 1918, Owen's narrator looks upon the body of a dead soldier, asking, was it for this the clay grew tall? Putting us in mind of the Promethean creation of man out of clay found in Greco-Roman mythology. To come back to that idea of transgression, I think Owen is encouraging the sense that these men, not by individual evil but by compulsion, are quite literally trampling over their heritage, their culture. As in Spring Offensive, I think Owen is insinuating that great blasphemies or heresies are being committed. Those engaged in the war are going against nature, going against art, and going against God. Christ is literally in no man's land, he wrote in a letter home, referring to Catholic relics he found scattered and often bullet-ridden whilst fighting in France. Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. So that's lame, blind, asleep, deaf and drunk. These men are as close as it gets to dead men walking. And now we have a curiosity, the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Curious for a couple of reasons, the hoots and dropping softly, presumably that's the scream of a shell firing versus the muffled sound of it landing, uh, sounds to me a bit like an owl, which hoots but moves in silence. Also curious because of the lack of consensus on how this line actually goes. In Owen's manuscripts, he also has the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines dropping. And previously, he had already ditched disappointed shells and tired-voiced five nines. You might hear or read tired, outstripped five nines, uh, depending on where you come across the poem. In the clip of Christopher Hitchens that I played reciting it um, in the intro, he says tired, outstripped five nines. Uh, To me, what that adds is the internal rhyme, the five nines and behind, and the military specificity, um, five nines being the chlorine gas shells that the Germans used. Uh, This is unusual for Owen. If you've listened to the episode on Spring Offensive, you might remember me pointing out how vague Owen keeps all of the details of the battle. It's almost as if he could be describing a completely different conflict from a bygone age. It also adds an equivalent feeling of lethargy and even despair to the enemy, being tired and outstripped, or tired-voiced, disappointed. However fair-handed you might want to be to the Germans, I think it works much better for the sense of threat um, and otherworldliness to keep them hooting and dropping softly instead. Also, dropping the five nines for gas shells prompts the wake-up call that comes next. Gas, gas, quick boys. That abrupt vocal intrusion waking up the boys and the reader to the fact that gas had snuck into the previous line unnoticed of gas shells dropping softly behind. It sounds a syllable too short, as if it should be of gas shells dropping carefully behind or something, but that missing syllable works to insinuate that there's something quite wrong here. And sure enough, that's when the narrator realises. Gas, gas, quick boys. As I say, this vocal exclamation wakes us up with its monosyllabic simplicity, the capitalising of that second gas and how it offends our sense of taste, I think that is particularly important. The whole scene may be one of horror, but there is beauty here as well. In Owen's first six lines, um, they have engulfed us with its lulling rhythm and assonance. Bent double like old beggars. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots. Limped on, bloodshot. To quote an earlier poem, we have been down-dragged in a sucking, slimy fen, and this sudden cry has ruined it. 
So why is this important? Well, at school, Owen had been told to restrain his high-flown Victorian phrasing, his teacher giving him the advice perennially flushed around creative writing classes, use simple words, write as you would speak. But if this poem entirely used simple words, words as simple or vocal as gas, gas, quick boys, it wouldn't be half as effective. Those four clipped, harsh syllables need to interrupt something. And I think by barking over his own poem, Owen shows us that here, art is impossible. As Ted Hughes said, Owen had all the gifts ready, a natural zest for orgies of sensation, carefully nursed in imitation of his idol Keats, with a special taste for the horrible, a romantic fever for the gothic and macabre. Then suddenly the unimaginable war arrived, mobilising these inclinations in him, and in the name of a high holy cause, supplying the unique material in the baldest reality as nothing else could have done. By turning on his own special tastes with the baldest, simplest language, Owen enacted the horror of the war, sucking the meaning out of life. An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, this sudden activity from the lethargic marchers has an unexpected sexual connotation, ecstasy of fumbling, uh, which in Owen's manuscript has a question mark left by Siegfried Sassoon. Owen has often been diagnosed as something of a sadomasochist and acknowledged his own association of pain and pleasure, writing that those mortals who have nerves exquisitely responsive to painful sensation have a perfect right to use them to respond equally keenly to enjoyment. But whatever it says about Owen's personal predilections, I think it is less important than the further impression of everything in this world being so disordered that a moment of panic and struggle is described as an ecstasy. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Someone, no distinction of who, just as there is no distinguishing what it was he was yelling. As George V. Griffith says, what speaking there is in the poem is equally terrible because ineffective or stifled or frantically despairing. The man's yells are incoherent and also useless. Words can't save him. Owen is adding to the elemental disarray, fire or lime, and uh, next we will see him drowning. So this gas, contradictorily, is behaving like a fire or liquid. Again, we are contravening basic natural laws. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. These haunting two lines bring us to the end of the first 14, which, if it was a Shakespearean sonnet, would be a rhyming couplet. Instead, it is unrhymed. Misty panes, obviously, of the narrator's own mask, and green light caused by the gas and perhaps the flares, creating a further sense of surreal displacement, as if they are suddenly under sea. The world is so out of kilter that here the men drown on dry land. And the drowning imagery doesn't just contribute to the horror of the death, it also cements how impossible it is for the man to speak or scream for help. Now we move into the second half with a line that reflects the last one, continuing the ABAB rhyme scheme, but instead of coming up with a rhyme for drowning, it just repeats it. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. And as we pass through the reflected lines, it is almost as if we have passed through a mirror. Now it is the narrator who is underwater, with the drowned man plunging at him, almost as if from the surface. Rhyming drowning with drowning emphasises that inescapable futility, to use that word again, 
And it also carries us suddenly into the present tense, the narrator now saying that he is haunted by the man's death in a way that makes it sound as if it is still happening. The man is in eternal torment, plunging at him, guttering, choking, drowning. At that very Ted Hughes-like word, guttering, Owen really went back and forth on that. You can see from his uh, manuscripts that he considered gargling, gurgling and goggling before landing on guttering. Far nastier than the others, not only as a horrible noise, but for bringing to mind literal gutters in a sewer or perhaps an abattoir floor. Now we have to consider the narrator himself. In all his dreams, he says, it is constant for him, reminding us of Owen's real phantasms, his horrors. My helpless sight reinforces the idea of him being trapped in his mask, unable to look away, but also introduces a sense of guilt, helpless because afraid, or helpless as in unhelping. John Hughes asks whether or not the poem may secrete in these lines, as the word plunging secretes the word lunging, that in the haunting scene the man was repeatedly attempting to pull off Owen's own mask, and that Owen resisted this. It's an intriguing possibility, and certainly Owen said that his phantasms, even before the war, came with stains of shadowy crimes. But whether this implies the man really did lunge at Owen's mask, or only began to once he started appearing in Owen's dreams, we'll never know. One of Owen's doctors who treated him for neurasthenia, Arthur Brock, claimed that his patient had fully exercised his horrors through poetry. In the powerful war poems of Wilfred Owen, Brock writes, we read the heroic testimony of one who, having in the most literal sense faced the phantoms of the mind, had all but laid them ere the last call came. They still appear in his poetry, but he fears them no longer. It's quite galling to read, knowing the kind of temporary insanity men like Owen had to cultivate in order to get back to the front, to alienate themselves from their natural emotions and impulses and will to survive, to the point where they could perform their duty in a state of obscene calm, their nerves charred, to use a phrase of Owen's. And certainly the impression that Owen directly gives in this poem is that to the contrary, his dreams, all his dreams in fact, have lost none of their phantoms or their guilt. And next he, he uses this to address the reader. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin. Smothering dreams, so dreams in which you drown, pace is a bit strange, isn't it? Feels a bit too fast for this kind of underwater dream. But it makes us imagine the narrator or ourselves pacing back and forth in front of the body unable to look away, almost like a murderer planning their alibi. The wagon that we flung him in, Owen here is building up to his repudiation of propagandists like uh, Jesse Pope. There's no glory in death here, but a disgusting, miserable end, the carcass thrown onto a wagon like dead cattle or something. And is he dead or isn't he? Are his eyes writhing post-mortem or is he taking an age to die? This continues the horrible feeling of, of the present tense, as if this man is still drowning, still suffering. Hanging face like a devil sick of sin, the strongest indication that the man has done wrong himself, even if he is clearly a victim. But his face is so warped that it, re it resembles a devil's that has worn itself out with sinning. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, 
Again, it's hard to tell whether this is someone dying or a, a kind of shaking corpse. Either way, you can hear it, can't you? The froth corrupted lungs coughing with every jolt. Obscene as cancer, cancer that nonsensical disease, nature turning on itself, obscene. Incurable sores on innocent tongues, the idea of senseless punishment returning, drowning on dry land, a hapless victim transformed into a devil, innocent tongues cankered as if they are being punished for speaking evil. In an earlier draft of this quatrain, Owen had, If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, and think how once his head was like a bud, fresh as a country rose, and keen and young. George V. Griffith comments that the earlier lines, with their trite and slightly homoerotic metaphor, are rich in an irony that indicts the war for its corruption of the innocent young. The revision, by showing the incurable corruption of an innocent tongue, insists on the matter of speaking and focuses its irony on the subject of poetry, for it is poetry's tongue which is corrupt, poetry's voice which lies. Now, first and foremost, the poetry of propaganda is the one that lies, as Owen makes plain in his uh, last four lines. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Now, although a certain poetess, who we know to be Jessie Pope, uh, is being reprimanded for telling the old lie, as Griffith suggests in his reading of the poem, dulce et decorum est has more than a touch of self-reproach. Owen, who had worked as a vicar's assistant before becoming spiritually disillusioned, explicitly linked his poetic impulse with his rift from the church. I am convinced that I hold under my tongue powers that would shake the foundations of many a spiritual life. And while Ted Hughes describes Dulce at the Coramest as doing the work of an outraged TV camera, I think on the contrary Owen regarded his committing his experiences on the front to poetry with a similar kind of guilt. Even anti-propaganda is propaganda of a kind, and I think the continued emphasis on tongues, voices, and phantasms lunging perhaps at the narrator's face indicates a guilt connected to the words coming from the poet's mouth. These men cannot speak for themselves, as we see horribly demonstrated in the gassed man yelling incoherently as he drowns. Unable to speak for themselves, what we have instead are a poet's representations, his actors. Part of me wonders whether the original inclusion of five nines was in, meant in some way to mirror the 14 lines of a sonnet, a form that Owen used repeatedly throughout his life and doubled here in Dulce et Decorum Est. Traditionally, a Shakespearean sonnet divides itself into an octave and sestet, which Owen appears to follow at first, just as he follows the rhyme scheme A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. Uh, meaning that it is the ninth line that brings the change. Gas, gas, quick boys. That's line nine. This is probably just pure chance, but it works quite nicely with the idea of guilt, uh, uh, the guilt of restaging these horrors in a poem and claiming the final word. In a deleted line, Owen says, I must not speak of this thing as I might. Harold Bloom writes that the young Owen's work up to this point had displayed the romantic flourishes and lush imagery one would expect from someone who idealised Keats and Shelley. Sassoon recalls criticising the over-luscious writing in his immature pieces and challenging the almost embarrassing sweetness in the sentiment of some of the work that Owen showed him. However, it seems to me that it is Owen's romantic impulses and luscious imagery that distinguish him amongst his fellow war poets. 
He never quite shrugs those impulses off, but begins to deploy them in more mature and cunning ways. Thankfully, that question marks are soon left by ecstasy of fumbling went ignored. By including a few haunting flares of that sentiment in and amongst the horror, Owen's outrage at what was being lost is still heard loud and clear. And I think that brings us to the end of uh, of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed. Um, if you have, consider listening to my previous episodes connected to Owen, both on uh, Pat Barker's Regeneration and um, Owen's other poem, Spring Offensive. If you enjoy the podcast, consider uh, leaving a review on something like iTunes or any other podcast platform you listen to or subscribing on YouTube if you're watching this in the, uh, in the second dimension. I'll be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, happy reading. <laughs>